All right, so we're going to do this a little bit different than last week, um, or in the weeks we've done in Genesis, uh, where we've had someone come up and read the passage um, beforehand. Uh, I'm just going to read these, um, both sets of verses as we get going. Uh, something else will be a little bit different. Um, we are going to take communion together um, as a church um, at the end of the service, and the, so the kids will be coming out a little bit earlier than normal, so keep an eye out for the kids that, that do come out. Um, There's a question that I was thinking of this week that kind of sums up a lot of what I've been seeing as we've been kind of walking all through Genesis, and it's not going to stop anytime soon, Um, but has anyone ever felt conflict or tension in your family? Everyone says yes. The liars say no. Um, as the more and more that, I, that I've, we've been in, the longer we've been in Genesis, the longer uh, we've kind of been following these family lines all the way from the very beginning, there's always been this tension. I mean, in Adam and Eve, you see some issues going on there with their blaming and all that. And you see Cain and Abel, we've seen in Abraham's life, that, that there's been continual tension, continual conflict in family units. And as, as I said, I've been thinking about it this week and The main families that God has been using in Scripture are not these picture-perfect families in the ways we would define them in this world. There's been, again, continual issues. And it's kind of comforting to see that God is continually at work in these families when they are very, very far from perfect. And that's kind of where we left it off last week. Um, Tanner, as he was ending, like we see these... These twins that have, that are, that have been born, um, Jacob and Esau. And we see, before they're even born, there's conflict. Um, Rebecca notices this, um, even in her womb, that they were already waging this war. And then we, we end with that statement, well, Isaac loved Esau, um, and Rebecca loved Jacob. So there's already issues, already issues. And that's kind of where we left off. So I'm going to pick up in chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, I'm going to pick up in verse 29. I'm just going to read the first little section first. So once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So that tension that we kind of left off with last week, we immediately see this beginning to play out. Uh, Apparently, we saw that Mr. Wild Game Hunter, Esau, comes in from the field. He's really, really, really hungry. Um, so hungry that he begs Esau for, or he begs Jacob for, for food, for this soup that he's been making. And Jacob, being this little conniver, um, trickster, says, like, well, I'll give it to you, but you've got to give me your birthright. You've got to give me this. And I think it's easy to miss in our 
context, in our culture, in our time, because birthright is not really something that we talk about a whole lot. And it's my understanding um, from reading a little bit into it that the birthright was given to the firstborn son. And the birthright would have been 50% of the father's inheritance. So 50% of the father's inheritance. And then the remaining 50% would then be split amongst the other children. So depending on how many children um, parents had, that, would, that could get just smaller and smaller and smaller. And we've seen examples, it was reading through genealogies, these families are big. Like, and it says, then this mother and father, they had this child and this child and this child and this child. And we see how big that is. And so that 50% was, was, was kind of a big deal. And Tanner talked about this last week. Um, but being the oldest child in the family initially, I was like, yeah, we should bring that back. And then I realized I have one sister, so she would also get 50%, and then it was just not as exciting. Um, but if you think about this in terms of Jacob, like he was the second-born son by probably seconds or minutes. I mean, it talked about them being born. It said he was holding on to the heel of, of Esau. And we see this tension playing out. This Jacob, I don't know if it's out of jealousy or why he is tricking Esau out of this. But we kind of, it kind of leaves us off. It says, like, and Esau hated his birthright. And we don't get a whole lot more detail about that interaction this week. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that and some, and some further parts of that story next week. But there's a lot of drama going on in this family. So I'm going to move on. And I'm going to read um, all of chapter 26. Um, bear with me. It's a lengthy one. But I think we're going to see how it, how it ties together. But I also thought it was important to, to talk about that first section first. So, chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Then the men, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of that place kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled all, with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, 
which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they had contended with him. And they dug another well and quarreled over that also. So they called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philco, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I see the benefit to having other people read that. <laughs> um, did anyone else notice the, that Genesis 26 sounded very familiar? Like there's a famine in the land. The individual leaves and starts heading to another city. That individual gets to that place and lies about his wife being his sister. That king of that land calls him out. And then there's some conflict between the two. But then later on, that king comes and wants to make a treaty. Like all of this is very, very, very familiar. It's almost a play-by-play of Abraham's interactions with Abimelech in Genesis 20 and 21. And I think we're, what we're seeing, what we're being reminded of, is that Abraham's challenges, Abraham's experiences, his challenges, have now become Isaac's. The same set of challenges, same struggles. We see the same lying, the same scheming, the same conflict with those around him. Like These are not just isolated to Isaac but they're the same ones we saw in Abraham. And then the little bit we've seen of Jacob so far, it doesn't seem like Jacob is very different either. And I think as we see this, I think we're seeing trends that we often see in the world today as well. Like, think of your own family. Are there certain trends that you might see? Good or bad? I mean, we see, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an occupation. Maybe you have a family of generations of teachers. Maybe it's a location. Your whole family has continually lived in a certain city or the same town. 
Maybe it's a specific economic trend. Maybe it's been generation after generation of living in wealth or living in poverty. Maybe it's a specific sin, generation after generation of traces of alcoholism or addiction. Like research shows these things are true. The generational poverty, generational addiction, generational sin, generational habits going through families are real. Because we see that our lives are often modeled, are often, our lives are often similar to that which we see modeled for us. And sure, the, the, the sin of Jacob, he's responsible for that. But he's acting no different than what he's seen from Isaac. Isaac's not acting any different than he's seen from Abraham. And like the application in parenting is so, so huge here. Like, it's not just what you verbally teach children, but it's what we model before them, what they see. Because if what children see is people lashing out in anger, specifically parents, lashing out in anger, in violence, and yelling, and lying, what can you expect out of children when they are angry? But if what they see is forgiveness being given, kindness being shown, grace being displayed, patience being displayed. Children see this too. What, what are we modeling for children? But it doesn't just apply for those that are parents. Like it's the same in discipleship relationship. It's the same as we seek to model our lives in a way that yeah, the younger believers see us. And chances are at some place, some time, there are people who look up to you. Do people see us as, as bitter or quarrelsome or angry? Because so much of what we, how we act is in ways that we see modeled for us. And we've talked to um, the kids a lot about, like, we're all teachers. We're all teachers. Like, there are people watching us. There are people learning from us. And so it never fails that when one of the kids is, is upset that maybe he's yelling or screaming, like, hey, baby's, the baby's watching you. Almost every time, the baby will start screaming along with them. Whether the baby's happy or sad, the baby's going to scream too because he responds in ways that he sees, right? And I think we're all like that. We've all seen the way that plays out in our lives. But what are we modeling for our children? What are we modeling for younger Christians? What are we modeling for siblings? I think we see the similarities, multiple similarities between Abraham and Isaac. And I don't think this is accidental in the text, that it's almost identical experiences in this way. And just up front, as we continue in this this morning, so much of what I see, so much of what I see is through the lens of a of, of family, through the lens of a family unit. Because there's so much conversation, there's so much emotion surrounded with the word family. Who is family? Who is not family? Who can be a family? How do you prioritize family? What are the roles in families? Like, on and on this goes, but we see people, people's identities, we see people's identities becoming wrapped up in their view of family, whether it's a family they have or it's a family they don't have. 
we see that identity becoming very, very important. And I just want to apologize up front, I guess, that I'm going to backtrack a little bit on what Tanner said last week about, hey, we're done with Abraham, we're moving on, because I've already said Abraham probably 50 times, and he's mentioned multiple times in the text, and we're going to move on eventually. But Abraham's this guy that we've talked about every single Sunday since March 3rd. I went back and looked. We've, ever since we were first introduced to him at the very, very end of Genesis 11 and then in Genesis 12, we see that the impact that, that Abraham has is not just, does not just end. We're going to move on and start talking more and more about his children, about his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. But he's still very, very... Um, important to this whole story. And so th- thinking of Abraham, like, and what we talked about this morning, like Abraham's family, Abraham's family has a ton of issues. We've seen a lot of these already play out. Like have you ever noticed that before, as we've been talking about Abraham's line since Genesis 12, like, there's a lot of imperfections in his family that have come to light. And I just want to remind you of some of these that we've seen um, thus far. I mean, Abraham himself, he's shown that he's a liar, that he is has not, not fully trusting this plan God has. We've seen him go outside and try to have his own child that's not the child of promise. We've seen him give his wife away to a foreign king. Then you have Sarah, who's been given away twice to foreign kings. We see Sarah, whose plan it was to give her servant to Abraham so he could have a baby with her. Like, there's all sorts of issues going on just in that marital relationship. And we haven't talked about him in a couple weeks, but Lot, you have Lot, Abraham's nephew, whose family lived in Sodom, and God rescued him out of that wicked place. We see that his wife turns around and like looks back and is turned to a pillar of salt. They finally get out of there. We see that wife's daughter or Lot's daughters then go and try to have children by him, and they do. Fast forward to this morning, Isaac, the, the apple's not falling far from the tree because he's lying about his wife being his sister. Abraham's grandkids, Jacob and Esau are now like battling it out over this birthright. One of them is so hungry that he's careless with his birthright. The other one is so stingy with what he... The other one is so stingy with, so greedy over what he doesn't have that he won't even just give his brother a thing of soup. Like, there's continually tension in this family. Like, there's more than a few issues here. And not too much of a spoiler alert, but the rest of Genesis, it doesn't get any better. Like, there's more and more. Just the, the issues ramp up more and more. And, and again, I say all of this because if we are identifying Abraham's family with the worldly standard that we see on what a good family is, on what family should look like, if that's what, how we're basing Abraham's success on, if that's how we're identifying his family, then they don't have any hope. Like, this is a family that if we knew them today, we would probably all think, wow, we, they really need some help. We need to find them help. But here's the thing. like This family, this earthly family with all of these problems, all of these 
really big problems are at the center of God's divine plan. Like, why would God choose this family with these specific problems to be at the center of his plan? Like, why would he not choose a family that is more put together? Tanner said this last week, but God is continuing to choose the unlikely as his first choice. And that definitely seems true of Abraham's family, like the unlikely choice. Why would, they choose, why would God choose Abraham? And I, I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot this week, that, that we are so quick to identify with our earthly families, whether good or whether bad. We identify with them. We, 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 gain, we gather some sort of identity based on that experience. And do you ever look at certain families and think, wow, they just got it all together. Look at look how picture perfect they are. Look how nice their car is. Look how nice their house is. Look how nice, look how well-groomed their children are. Look how nice, nicely dressed they are. They're put together. And I, I would say that a lot of us probably have this, this image in our head of what this picture perfect family is supposed to look like. And I think that, I mean, in the last, I don't know how many years, 20 years, like social media has just further emphasized this, this picture because it's given us the ability to take selected pictures, selected pictures that we want the world to see and put them out there. Selected posts, selected moments. And I, my goal is not to bash social media, but what do you see when you go on and scroll through? You see smiling faces. You see people posing for pictures. You see families on vacation. You see what people want you to see. And we show what we want people to see. Like how often do you see pictures of a room destroyed because of a tantrum of a child? How often do you see pictures of siblings arguing and fighting over toys? How often do you see pictures of a spouse crying because their husband or wife hurt their feelings? Like social media has given us the ability to show what we want to show. Nothing more and nothing less. And my point is not that we should not post happy pictures on social media. But I think what that has done is further emphasize just this picture-perfect family that we have in our minds. And what it does is grow a desire in us to give off that image. It grows that desire, but also grows in the ways that we're ashamed when our family doesn't look like that. When our family has issues. When our family is having problems. And it's ridiculous to think about, but I was thinking about Abraham. Like, I don't imagine there being much that he would want to share with the world. Like, I gave my wife away today to Pharaoh, or, or oh man, today I, my wife gave me her servant. Like, there's issues there that's like, that's not going for the public to see. And what is our view? Like, based on this false idea of what a perfect family is supposed to look like, Abraham's family, Isaac's family, Jacob's family, is not it. It's not it. And again, if Abraham's family is where he's, he's getting his identity from, like, he's got nothing to hope in. Like, we'll, as, I, as I say all these things, what feelings, for you specifically, what feelings are coming to mind? Because again, in this world, there's all sorts of pressure to 
get our identity from what we have, what we don't have, the family we have or the family we don't have. That's why social media, that, that, that comment rings so loudly because we see these pictures. And for a lot of us, it might be that these same comments, these same, when you see those pictures, maybe when you hear what I'm saying, it's like, it, that brings up pain, a heartache. Because maybe you know, like, I don't have that picture-perfect family. I don't have what, what the world is displaying on Facebook. And I'm sure that this, these, this whole conversation hits us all a little bit differently. And put yourself into to Abraham's shoes for a moment, or Isaac's shoes, or Jacob's shoes for a moment. Like, if you are any of these individuals, do you want your identity to be based on your earthly family? The lies, the deception, the adultery, the incest, the hatred. Again, if, if their family, if Jacob's family, if Isaac, if Abraham, if their family is based, if their family is identified by the worldly standards, the standards that the world sets, they are hopeless. And then in our own shoes, too. Like, if we are gathering our identity, if it's wrapped up in our earthly family, good or bad, if that is where we are basing our identity on, then we are just as hopeless. Because your family may not look like Abraham's. It may not look like Isaac's and Jacob's. It may look very, very different. But your family is also never going to be as perfect as you want them to be. It's never going to be as perfect as you want them to be. You can post all the, all the number of, of happy pictures you want to, and you're never going to have that, that happy family that you see on Facebook. You're never going to meet that goal. It's impossible. And so what you need, what I need, what Abraham needed, what Isaac needed, was an identity that transcends just an earthly family. An identity that is not wrapped up in what we have or what we don't have, what it looks like. Isaac had that need. Abraham had that need. We have this need. Because if their identity was based on their earthly family, like we probably would not be talking about them today. I mean, if, if their identity was based on their earthly family, the New Testament writers would have not talked about them nearly as much, I wouldn't think. I want to read Genesis 26, 1 through 5 again. I'll read these again. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn there in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Just like his father, Abraham, Isaac experiences this famine in the land. He travels to another place. I don't, we see in Genesis 12 that Abraham goes to Egypt. 
And I don't know if Isaac was heading there or not, but God says, hey, nope, don't, don't go to Egypt. Um, he says, stay right here in this land. Stay right here in this land where you are. And then verse 3, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will, maintain, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Like in this moment, God is coming to Isaac, reminds him of the same promises that he gave to Abraham. I will bless you. I will give your offspring this land. I will multiply you. It's the same promises given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. The same promises that God has came to Abraham and remind him of multiple times. And what we see is that although I said earlier that Abraham struggles, that we see that these are now Isaac's struggles. The same line. But what we also see is that Abraham's God is also Isaac's God. Like God is not just being faithful to Abraham, but is being faithful to Isaac. But here's what God is doing. He's saying, he's saying you're not defined by the craziness of your family. Like nowhere in these promises do we see conditions that are based on Isaac's family that it has to look a certain way or his kids have to act a certain way or that his kids can't fight or that he has to have this picture-perfect family. Seven times in four verses we see God saying, I will. I will tell you the land to go to. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give you all these lands. I will establish the oaths I gave to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring. I will give your offspring all these lands. Like, over and over and over, God's saying, I will, I will do this, I will do this. Not you must, you must. The authority to do that, the power to do all these things, did not rest in Abraham, it did not rest in Isaac, it wasn't going to rest in Jacob, but was resting on who God is and what he had declared. But in, at the same time, as I, as I first read these verses, um, in preparing for this week, I, I, was, I was kind of caught off guard for a second because like, wait, didn't God just say, oh, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Like, is that really saying that God is going to fulfill all these things because of what Abraham did? And I was like, hold on, haven't we been saying that Abraham had all these issues? He was a liar. He, he went out of his way and married his, his wife's servant, had Ishmael. Like, how can God say that Abraham obeyed all these things. And to answer that question, if you have your Bibles, flip back to Genesis 15. Back to Genesis 15. Because in Genesis 15, we see a huge thing in the life of Abraham. God has just come to him and reminded him, I'm going to give you so many offspring that you're not going to be able to count them. You're, you're not going to be able to count how many kids I'm going to give you. It started in verse 5. It says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Then verse 6. It says, And he, being Abraham, believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. 
Like Abraham believed the Lord. And I think when we were hearing this verse back, I don't know when it would have been, back in March, April, I don't think we actually mind how deep all this is here. But you see, Abraham's identity has completely changed, has completely shifted. I think in this moment we see that Abraham believes that God alone can accomplish these promises that he has given. It says, he believed the Lord. This is, this is Abraham stepping outside and saying, I cannot do all of this that you have said. All this that God has been telling him since Genesis 12. This Abraham saying, I cannot do those things. You can do those things. Like righteousness. Like, as Jordan was praying earlier, he was just saying, like, like righteousness, this right standing before God, this right standing before God that Abraham did not have, that you and I did not have. Because you see, Abraham was a sinner. Like Abraham, up to this point, was living a life defined by sin. Just like you and I, Abraham, born into sin with a sin nature and has no hope to, to change that, no hope to get out of that. And if we look at our own lives, I think we see this exact story playing out. But beginning in Genesis 12, God intervenes into Abraham's story. Genesis 12, God comes in and says, I'm going to do all these things through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you all these kids. I'm going to bless you. And regardless of how much Abraham trusted in that then, God intervenes in his story. And God continues to pursue Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14. God comes to him over and over and over again, reminding him, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You're not going to do this. I am going to do this. And Abraham is saved because God intervenes in his story. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that Abraham never sinned again. This is before one of the wife and lying episodes. This is before Ishmael and Hagar. But in this moment... It says that Abraham believed the Lord and trusted in him and now is declared as righteous. He's now seen as righteous in the eyes of God. He's been justified in that way. But listen, this was Abraham's new identity. His identity was not based in his family. It wasn't based in, in how picture perfect that family was. But his identity was now rooted in God declaring him as righteous. His identity wasn't his sin. It wasn't his mistakes. It wasn't his broken, messed up background. It wasn't his family. But his identity was rooted in who God declared him to be. Now back in Genesis 26, we see God coming and telling Abraham these same things, or coming and telling Isaac these same things. Reminding him of these same promises. So when it says that Abraham obeyed the word of God, he obeyed all these commandments and laws. It wasn't that obeying those laws made him righteous. It wasn't that, that all these things gave him a right standing before God. Because it wasn't that it at all. But this is God telling Isaac that just as your, just as your father's righteousness was not found in his works, neither is yours. 
It wasn't going to be found in your accomplishments or your effort, your sibling relationships, you being a perfect father, you being a perfect son, you being a perfect sibling. But Isaac's hope for righteousness was going to be found in only what God could accomplish. I think we see a glimmer of this in his interaction with Abimelech in verse 28. So he's been, Isaac's been having this interaction. He's been, he's been kind of told to, to go away because he's too powerful and they're, they're kind of scared of him. And then Abimelech comes to Isaac and wants to make a treaty. And what does he say? It says in verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. It's not, we see how great your family is. We see your picture-perfect family. We see what your background, you've got this great, great team around you. That's, that's not what it says. It says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. They saw what God had been doing, not what Isaac had been doing. And hear, hear the gravity, hear, hear the weight of this, because like, this should take a massive weight off of our shoulders. Because the hope is not found in how great of a husband you are, how great of a wife you are, how great of a sibling you are, how great of a spouse or parent or, or anything. It's not based on that. Like, our identity is not based on how successful we are, how well we match up to all those pictures on social media. Because God can do amazing things, can do incredible things through families that look like they have a lot of issues. Like we see that all over Genesis. We, as going through, we've seen fathers fail, we've seen mothers fail, we've seen siblings fight, we've seen all sorts of issues. And we're going to see that as we go on. We're going to see siblings try to kill a brother. We're going to see people chase each other. We're going to see all sorts of issues going on here. But over and over and over, see the failure, the imperfect families, that none of that is where true identity is found. It's not where identity is found. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them were de defined by their families, but by who God said they were the scening they had before God because of what he had done. And just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob, just like all the characters that we're going to meet going forward, we are not good enough. Like, we're never going to have a perfect enough family. For fathers, you're never going to be a good enough father. For mothers, the same thing. You're never going to be a good enough son, a good enough daughter. You're never going to have a perfect enough family. But God, a perfect Father, sent a perfect Son to do what we could not. Like this perfect Son of God dying so that we could be made righteous. Like that is where our hope is found and what He's done, not in what we've done. Like Jesus died so that we could be added to the family of God. Like, we're a part of that family. If we tr are trusting in Christ, being made righteous through the blood of Christ, then we are part of that family, the, that perfect family. I was looking back to Genesis 15 a lot this week. Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted on, on his grace, on his mercy. 
And I think that is what we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. Not trying to have that picture-perfect family. Not trying to live up to the certain standards that the world has set for us. But trusting that God has given us an identity in Jesus Christ that far surpasses anything else. As we look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there is... There is so much hope that can be found in a perfect God who redefines us on the work of his son. Now, I don't know where you're at. I don't know like every single story of every single person here. But maybe you've spent way too long trying to be good enough. You spent way too long trying to maybe just be enough. Like even in this moment, we have that same opportunity to fully say, I cannot do that. I am not good enough. That is a weight that I cannot bear. But there is a perfect father who sent a perfect son to save, to add us to his family. And this is beautiful news for the weary, for the brokenhearted. Because, again, the generations and generations of families that can be stuck in these cycles. Like generations, generations of hurt, generations of addiction, generations of loss, of heartache. And this is the message that we see, the identity that we are, are, are given in Christ, that freedom in Christ. Like that is the only thing that is going to break the generational tr- trends that we see in this world. As we meet people in our community, as we look at our own lives, as we look at people around the world, the the gospel, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that is going to break those chains. And this is what we have in Jesus. This is what we have, an identity that's not based in our family. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based on what we have. It's not based on what we don't have. It's not based on how others might see our family. It's not based on anything else but the blood of Christ and what he's done for us. Like we can cast our hurt, our pain, our loss, all of that at the feet of the cross because he can bear it. Like that is the hope that we have. That's the identity that we can have. As we move into a time of response, as we move into a time where we say, God, I cannot do this. I'm never going to be good enough. I don't have that in me. I just pray that we would all, that we'd all just, just cast that at the foot of the cross and trust that Jesus alone can give us a new identity. And let's pray.